0: This is Matt Brown, and you're listening to Just a Good Conversation. As a young boy growing up in Tennessee, Chris Douglas had dreams. Becoming a fashion model, a TV actor, and a professional photographer might not have been a part of those dreams. Chris has come a long way from those days of remembering lines for daytime soaps like The Young and the Restless, to now making some of the most beautiful Western images in advertising today
1: like I said you can look at one image and of certain photographers and they can bring tears to your eyes but you don't know why it's just that it's 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 so emotive because it came from the heart from behind the camera now it's on the paper and it's for for you and everybody else there to see and take it for what it's worth like no words needed
0: I'm Matt Brown host of just a good conversation take a listen to our archives My guests have ranged from small business owners, professional baseball players, professors, and former college baseball coach, Bill Kinnenberg. I never grew up. I never had a real job, Uh, you know, I played all my life or all my childhood, was lucky to play in college, and then started coaching it, so it's consumed my life, basically, and, and But, you know, I've never had a real job. Um, You know, people have always kind of made fun of me saying, that's not a real job. What else do you do? The rest of my conversation with Bill can be found on our archives at justagoodconversation.com. Let's take a quick break for a sponsor before diving into my conversation with Chris Douglas. This is my fourth season on the podcast, and I have got a man who has the best mustache ever. Who's ever been on the podcast. How are you, sir?
1: I'm doing great. How are you,
0: Chris? It is awesome to have you, man. That is the well, best stash.
1: It's <laughs> my, my, my Burt Reynolds wannabe Ooh, stash.
0: Damn, it is good. It is strong. I grew it,
1: I grew it as a joke at work when I was at Filson and I kept it. I've kept it for like the past two, two and a half years. So my kids hate it, but.
0: <laughs> Does the wife like it?
1: She likes it.
0: Okay, then that's all that matters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Kiss, kissing the kids good night. You just did a tickle them. But, you know, you, you look strong, man. It looks great.
1: I uh, appreciate it.
0: <laughs> I can't grow anything like that. When I knew I was going to have you on, I was actually going to see if I can like maybe paint one on or something like Groucho Marx to kind of, you know, man up with you. My god, sir. <laughs> that looks awesome. All right, so your your story is so so fantastic now I know you're very humble about it but I mean let, let's let's dive into your life growing up in the great state of Tennessee how was that like as a kid
1: I you know it was idyllic I, it was just one of those things that um of course because I was in the middle of it and grew up there as far as for like my whole childhood uh it I kind of took things for granted. Like I thought, Oh, everybody. And and it was great because my family, but I think family is the most important thing aside from the Tennessee part. But, um, you know, I I was blessed to have, you know, two parents that loved each other and stayed together, still together. Um, grandparents that both sides came together for Christmas and Easter and new years and every holiday, and lots of cousins, I was an only child, but um but I got my good fair share of hazing and and getting beat up by the by the cousins. I've got quite a few cousins so um so so i, I in that respect, I feel like I was kind of spoiled because I thought, oh, everybody's life's like this, but you know obviously it's not and and uh you know i like i said i more than blessed to 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 be able to to live where I lived back then and um have the family that I have and it's uh you know from the hunting trips to the all the times together over holidays and stuff like I just mentioned it's it was it it helped me um kind of blossom into the person that I guess I became I mean I can't say that I was like the easiest child to deal with, but at the same time, <laughs> I, I, I I was able to to enjoy the outdoors. I mean, Tennessee offers so much as a state. And oh, yeah. Being over in East Tennessee, we were so close to the Smoky Mountains. I mean, we'd go there. I mean, I'd talk my grandfather into taking me every weekend if we could. And oh. Cherokee, North Carolina was right there. So we had kind of the best of both worlds in the sense of, like, the mountains and the lakes and trees and nature and animals. And like I said, it's 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 almost feels fake, but I mean, I think that's why I live in Montana now because it (laughs) feels more like Tennessee did back then a long long time ago. Not probably should have been born 200 years ago anyway, but here I am. (laughs) So
0: what was, was fishing big? Did you guys do a lot of fishing and hunting?
1: You know, um, so my mom's sister, um, she was, I think 12 years older than my mom. So there's a big split between my mom and her. And then my mom, my mom's brother, I think there was 12 years between my mom's brother. And then there was 15 years between my mom's sister and her. So my mom's sister had four boys and they were all like eight. My my aunt was a world champion skeet shooter and trap shooter. And then her four boys were all AAU junior national champion trap and skeet because their dad was into that stuff and they were in the Nashville area. And then, um, down all the way down to my uncle, he hunted and fished. And so I kind of got a good mix from both sides of them, but, um, the four boys, um, my aunt's boys, um, introduced me to duck hunting and they, all got houses except for the one uh, that lives in Laguna Niguel, California. Um, they all still live in that area around Dale Hollow. So okay. Dale Hollow Lake, which is awesome for fishing. Like it's one of the um, smallmouth bass capitals of the world. Yeah. And then we grew up, you know, I grew up hunting with them, duck hunting and all that kind of good stuff. So it was, it was, it was a pretty awesome spot. So,
0: yeah, that's, I mean, that's what a boy dreams of. Even if he's not even aware of it, that's a good life. Yeah, yeah, and and you know we I
1: grew up on uh, the the Clinch River or Melton Hill Lake by Melton Hill dam so we literally were on the river. I mean, I used to take pool floats and go out and catch baby ducks and you know, it, you know, that kind of life.
0: Damn, sir, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. When when did the camera get in your hand? When did you discover the camera? My mom had a my mom had an old
1: Canon AE-1 and I don't think she used it that much, but she had it laying around. And I remember grabbing it, um, at one point and, you know, of course this is when film was out. And sure. so I would put in the film and all I knew was that the, she had told me the guy at the shop just said, use 100 for outside and 400 for inside. And that's all you want to do. And so I didn't know any settings or anything. And back then it didn't have an auto. No. So I would just mess with stuff. And of course, Play around with it, and I think over my grandparents' fiftieth wedding anniversary, I started like they got. I remember my mom still got the pictures, but um, they had a cross, a gold cross, and it had a fifty in the middle of it, like a, a cursive fifty. And I laid it on this green carpet and laid it out, and I was messing with the angles and like taking pictures with it. And of course, there again, you don't know what you get until you go develop the film, right? And I had had this picture of University of Tennessee football helmet and jersey that was painted that was above my bed. So I took my football helmet and my jersey and I laid it up and set up a backdrop and tried to emulate that artwork that was over my bed. I did that. And she just uh, – my mom just sent it to me a couple months ago. It's on my phone somewhere, but it's (laughs) that picture uh, from that because she would like – I would get all these rolls of film and it would just be these inane (laughs) – things that I would take pictures of so I mean I must have been around nine or something when I picked it up and I didn't you know I wasn't thinking oh I want to be a photographer one day right. I was just playing, being creative I, I loved to draw at that time I love to to create things and I, I think that's what kept me occupied as an only child when I didn't have my cousins around or friends around that that was my entertainment um was the drawing and thinking up these phantasmical stories and that kind that kind of thing. So I, so with that, I think that just kind of took a, took a hard left into the photography part of it. And, um, I ended up by college, I ended up getting, so through high school and stuff, I just wanted to play sports and get through school and try to pass. And so <laughs> I, I was at the point to where, um, by the time college rolled around, they had these old Polaroid land cameras. remember the kind that you, that they could yes. the, the film, not the six, six, seven kind. I ended up getting one of those, but like the ones that you, the emulsified where you'd pull it. Not the, right, zzz, yes. not that one. So, um, I had one of those. And so I would go and take, take those on our hunting trips and stuff like that. Cause they were so cool. Cause they were black and white. They looked really vintage. Yeah. And, um, like I say, knew nothing about photography or photographers at that point or anything, and would take pictures of our hunting dogs or take pictures of, um, you know, the lake or ducks or whatever, you know, and with those, you had to be really close to a subject to be able to do that. So it was more, you know, when I was taking pictures of ducks, it was after harvesting ducks and hunting and all that. And, and, and I would take portraits of, my buddies that I went to college with that we were out because we'd all get out and go hunt and, um, carried that around for a little while. So I had stacks of these old cool black and white and, and bad color Polaroids. Um, and yeah, just kind of, that was just in the back of my head and the back of my mind. And
0: they must've been know, thinking, Chris, what are you dragging this damn camera around for? We're hunting. I mean, they must have. Well, it, it was it was one of
1: those things that I don't think they really paid attention because it, it it's so unobtrusive. It, I mean, it did have that old bad you could screw the flat. It had the one of the like L shaped like yeah flashes bracket, yeah. on the side of it, and you could take it on and off. But it was just more or less just trying to make sure that I didn't let the Polaroid sit too long before I peeled it apart or any of that kind of stuff. Because of course I'm doing something else. If we're getting ready we to get wet but they look kind of cool when they get wet too, or, you know, yeah, so you could, you could, them.
0: you could scratch on them. You mm-hmm. can do all kinds of cool stuff with it.
1: Yeah. I just didn't take the time to do that. Now <laughs> I wish I'd have been like, Oh, I wish I thought, you know, I had the forethought to be like, Oh, those would be cool today. But, um, but yeah, I just did that and then I uh, was going to university of Tennessee and, and, was wanting, you know, to have a career as an illustrious athlete, and that just didn't happen. And were you so playing they,
0: sports there at Tennessee?
1: Um, I wanted to. Um, I was going to walk on. My intention was to walk on at University of Tennessee to play football, and it just didn't happen with everything that was going on. I had gone to SMU for a visit for football, okay. and I was more suited for SMU more so than Tennessee as a defensive back, but, um, that's the year they got the program cut. So right after I went there to visit, they were playing Texas A&M. I went to the game and then, uh, the next week is when the sports illustrated article came out (laughs) and said, Hey, this, this got cut. So when going to Tennessee, I was like, well, I can just do it here. I'll bulk up add another 15 pounds and then see what I could do. Um, and, uh, just ended up, uh, had some, uh, modeling scouts come by and they were like, Hey, they grabbed me and a buddy of mine on campus and we're like, Hey, do you guys want to model? And I was like, "Mm, no. And they were like, well, it's for this brand, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Nope, no interest. And then he told me how much it paid. And I was like, okay, yeah. Where do I sign up? So, um, (laughs) so long story short, um, ended up one of my first jobs was with uh, Bruce Weber shooting Versace. So Bruce had all these scouts that would go around. Like um, there was a guy named Al David out of Miami, Mm -hmm. who's a photographer and also uh, a scout and, uh, and ended up going down to Miami meeting Bruce and a guy named Sam Shahid. That was the creative director at a couple of bigger, larger brands. And he worked with Bruce quite a bit on a lot of the larger campaigns and, um, Next thing I know, I was, uh, was a couple of weeks. I was flown to San Francisco and we're shooting the worldwide campaign for Gianni Versace with Talisa Soto and Gail Elliot and and uh, Daryl George and all these people that were always in you know those type of ads. And
0: now I gotta ask, when what did Mom and Dad say when you tell them?
1: Well, my mom used to model a little bit in Atlanta and stuff, so she she kind of knew the gambit of it, but my dad, he, he was just, he didn't understand, like, he didn't understand it until the money part came in and he was like, oh yeah, okay, I understand, but like, it's, it's it wasn't, he wasn't reticent to it, he was just more of the fact of like, I don't really understand enough about it. So he was just like, you yeah, do whatever you've got to do. Go, yeah, go do it. If right. Cause if they're it. not
0: industry people. And all of a sudden you're like, uh, one day I was in biology class and now I'm going off to, you know, San Francisco to shoot for this gentleman, Bruce. Like, well, I-, I can't
1: say that I was at the time. I can't say that I was even mature enough to apply myself as a student. So okay. I, I wasn't doing great. <laughs> it was probably the next thing out of my dad or mom's mouth would probably been like, Hey, you got to get a job if you want to pay for this <laughs> college thing, cause it's not panning out. Yeah. So, but, uh, but just happenstance. I mean, like most of the things that have happened in my life, oddly enough, it just, it was one of those that for all the right reasons or whatever, I was supposed to be there, right. you know, on, you know, in San Francisco at the time. And then that campaign <laughs> broke and all of a sudden I'm in living in Italy between Milan and Paris and New York for 2 years. So it was just like literally boom. And, so. and that's
0: crazy because it's and it happens a lot. You know a lot then, a lot less now because you have social media. So you can scout people easier. Mm-hmm. But they would walk around college campus and send out agencies and, you know, just go to SC, go to UCLA, see you can find a pretty girl. For Bruce yeah, it was people, all,
1: it was I mean aside from Talisa and Gail, I mean it was it was all athletes. I mean, there was right. – I can't remember the guy's name, but he was an Olympic wrestler, like a really young Olympic wrestler. Mm-hmm. And then it was like Rick Arango, who played middle linebacker at the University of Miami. And yeah. there was uh, uh, Rob Sporer, I think is his last name, but he was – I think he played baseball. Uh, Robert Merrill, who I'm still friends with, he was a University of Florida baseball player. Um shot all the Ralph Lauren stuff. And, yeah. uh, I mean, it's, it was, I, I think Bruce, you know, from the short amount of time that I spent with him on multiple shoots, like he liked surrounding himself with ath like real people, like yes. athletes. I mean, you've seen his, some yep. of his documentaries, probably like anywhere from Chet Baker to, to, you know, the trumpet player, jazz musician yeah. to, uh, you know, these, Andy, I can't remember his last name, but he was a boxer or something. So, I mean, it's, you know, those kind of storied content people, what we'd say for now for storied content, like those were real back then. And I think sometimes now it gets, it's a little disheartening because you can, I mean, you can kind of almost see through the malarkey of the facade. So um, of the manufactured storied content, but, um, and I can't, I'm not a big fan of that word content anyway, but it's just, it's just, being in the industry for so long and I sound like you know, oh I'm eighty years old, I'm not. But it's 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 just one of those the 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 way that everything has progressed is is crazy. I mean you've seen it. Yeah. Um, oh, it's bonkers. Going, We're going the same digital, age. So, to, yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing. It's great but it's just one of those things that it's, it's so overwhelming. I mean, it's like this AI thing now, like I, that's like warp speed compared to to what we went through from film to digital. Now look at this, look at this thing. Holy cow.
0: Right. Great. That's quite frightening. Yeah. 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 So, so what are you thinking? I mean, now you're in Europe and you're jumping back and forth between countries and you're, throwing on very expensive clothes and you're meeting all these people like. Well, it helped me grow up
1: fast. I'll tell you that because I didn't like to get a grasp of like, there's a whole nother world out there aside from my bubble in Tennessee that I've spoke about. Um, it, it did make for, um, a good opportunity to like literally grow up. And I mean, I and, for better or for worse, it happened, and and you know I was mad when I got to Italy because nobody would speak. I would hear people speaking English at a at a sandwich shop and walk in, and then I would ask them for something. Can I get us this or that point? And I would get so mad because they would act like they didn't speak English, and I'm like, I, I just heard you talking English. Like, don't you know blow smoke? So <laughs> and they. You know, and so it 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 it, and and rightly so for them. Like, uh, who am I, this dumb American coming in, being like, "Oh, you better speak English to me." Like, that, like, so, I, like I said, I had to grow up in a lot of respect. So I I learned to um, have to adapt, and I had to learn how to order food to eat. Uh, And and even when I would go back and forth between Milan and Paris, like I still couldn't speak French, so I would have to speak either Italian if they would speak to me in Italian or just hold all my francs out in my hands like this and be, you take what you need for these bananas. I don't know how much you're taking, but like, I don't, you know, have at it. So I was just hungry. <laughs> so, trying to eat. So, now,
0: how did you learn modeling? Cause I mean, you, you and I both shoot models and we know models it's a skill like I was how- horrible
1: I wasn't good like it was that was horrible like I'm not a good model like I don't know I don't even know why like how it's just it was um Bruce was good because he he didn't he would say look here look there look down look up mm-hmm. like you didn't have to like you know yeah. do these jump in the air shots that they need these animated smiley overblown. like when every time that if I got pulled into one of those jobs, for Macy's or something. And they're like, okay, now go. And I'm like, what do you go? Where, (laughs) what do you want me to do? I don't know what to do. So I was terrible. So, but I've, I've made money at it and was able to support myself and had a great group of people that um, I was with click in New York and, and had a great group of people that are still some of my friends today that, uh, you know, just kind of, showed me the ropes and said, here, go do this, go do that, and we'll take care of the rest. And so it worked out really, really good. And then the guys that I had in um, Milan, Ugly People was the name of the agency, and um, there was a guy there from Trinidad named Calvin French um, that was my agent, and he, you know, was like, here, same thing. Kind of like they helped me along to where I I wasn't floundering, but at the same time they – they gave me just enough rope to hang myself, but luckily I was able to swing and move into other aspects of the industry.
0: So. But you were it's unbelievable. You worked with some greats. I mean, you worked with Bruce, obviously, but Stephen and Arthur and Norman. Like, you worked with some very, very established pillars of photography.
1: Yeah, and I, and I didn't even realize it at the time. I mean, I did and I didn't. I was like, oh, everybody, you know, because you hear people, you know, I get a call and I'd be like, you got to shoot with – X Y Z and I'm like oh, okay. Like how how much to pay? Where do I go? Where do I go? You know, I wasn't I wasn't thinking that way, Um, but look, you know, in hindsight, it was it was a a great experience because I was able to take all those things that I was ingesting Mm -hmm. um, and just let those seep into my you know what I think has helped in the, the development of some sort of an eye or whatever little of an eye I have, like it helps to, 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 you know, from a storytelling, you know, just like how Bruce does or, um, Dave LaChapelle or some of you know, how they, they tell these stories, these creed, like yes. that, that does, that's opposite ends of the spectrum, but they're telling stories nonetheless. Right. So they're shooting many movies with, with stop action motion. I mean, that's where I feel like Bruce does and does well. And I mean, he's a master at it. So, I mean, that's where that, you know, great respect for people like that, that have that kind of wherewithal to be able to, to build that out and be able to, to let an audience see it. And like I said, you can look at one image and of, of certain photographers and they can bring tears to your eyes, but you don't know why. It's just that it, it's, it's, it's so emotive because it came from the heart from behind the camera. Now it's on the paper and it's for, for you and everybody else there to see and take it for what it's worth. Like no words needed. Right. That's How yeah.
0: long did you think you were going to go and make a run at this? Was there ever a thought like I was "Ah, just like I said I
1: was just day to day going happy go lucky kind of just whatever you know just and and that's when the next thing happened so that's um, you know through uh, I had done the Armani underwear campaign with Lance Stadler and it was the same time that Antonio Sabato Jr. had the Calvin Klein campaign out it was the campaign right before David Beckham did the Mm -hmm. Armani. Emporio Armani underwear campaign so I was the right before him and ABC had seen some stuff and so they had already contracted um, Antonio for uh, a show and I think they'd stuck him on a soap opera and so they um, wanted me to come read for a soap opera and I was like eh, I, don't know, I don't know about that and then, <laughs> so I went and ended up you know, got contracted through ABC and ended up on this soap opera. And, and like I said there again, I'm no actor, but, and I can't act my way out of a paper bag. There's these great insurance commercials out now that my kids and wife love to say, he must've gone to the the school of acting because (laughs) because they're horrible. And I, I, like I said, I'm not, I don't, claim to be an actor, but I've made there again, I made money at it. I don't know how, but it, it, uh, well, it was funny. So.
0: I mean, was there any terror? I mean, there's one thing when you're, when you're being directed by Bruce and it's a still, and you don't have to say anything. You just got to look good and you got to watch your diet and have the clothes look good on you. And right. there's another thing when you've got to learn lines and hit your mark and you got to act off of other people. I mean, was that terrifying, that first, like, week?
1: More so from a – like, I had done some little stints on married with children and stuff that had been asked to do, you know, okay. those type of things, and that was saved by the bell to college years. And, the, and so that was, like, whatever. It was kind of similarly silly to, right. uh, to modeling because I didn't have, like, huge parts, but it was just enough to where I could memorize, like – hey, you want to buy these tickets? Because I had long hair, so I looked like (laughs) like a rock guy. So they'd be like, you want to buy these tickets to this concert? You know, asking Kelly on Married with Children or whatever. But then um, the soap operas are a different world. I mean, great respect to those actors that are on those, the actual actors that are on those shows, not the people like me who are just there (laughs) taking up space in the air. Oh,
0: come on. Because
1: they have to memorize, like, Pages and pages and pages of dialogue. And like, I, it, that was daunting for me. Cause I'm like, cause I, of course I've got trauma from school and then I'm like, Oh, now I've got to memorize all this and then spit it back out. So I think at the point, you know, after the first six months to a year of being on, uh, I was on one life to live at ABC, um, without the help of the, Crew, like the camera guys and the the people that were running the set and stuff, and the producers. Like I, I don't know if I'd have even made it past the fourth, fifth, sixth day. Um, but finally, they got to a point to where, oh, it was close enough. It's it's Friday. It's five o'clock. Let Chris have it. We'll, we'll take it. go <laughs> next. We'll <laughs> go next. So so I felt bad, but I, gosh, you know.
0: Well, I mean, were there any acting classes that they gave you or suggested like, hey, sir, maybe you should spend Saturday afternoon down at, you know, NYU? Yeah, they
1: would, they would send me because they would pay for them and send me. But I just, I I don't, I just didn't hit home with me. I wasn't, I didn't, I wasn't, I wasn't, after I did one like, like they, they had, I had, when I was still doing the other stuff, I'm going to jump backwards again before yeah. ABC. Um, uh, Lawrence Kasdan, I'd met with Lawrence Kasdan to go to play Kevin Costner's brother in um, uh, Wyatt Earp. Mm-hmm. And so I flew down to Austin. He was doing a movie with Kevin Co- with Kevin was doing a movie with Clint Eastwood in Austin, Texas. So I forget what the name of the movie was, but I flew down to meet Kevin in Austin at the four seasons hotel and all that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. And and ended up going to eat or grab a drink with Kevin after he got back from playing golf one day. And he was like, yeah, I'll talk to Larry. And Hey, you're a little green for this, but you know, let me suggest that, you know, you, you've got to act, you've got to act, you've got to learn how to act. And like, he kept repeating that over and over and I'm looking at him like he has three heads. Um, <laughs> So he gives me this guy's name in California named Greg Bach. Awesome guy. Super guy. So I'm like, oh, whatever. I'll go since Kevin Costner asked me to go. You know, I like Dancers of the Wolves. I'll go meet with Greg Bach. So I met with Greg. And then Greg um, was great because he was like, less is more. And so he goes, you're, you're not the type that needs a lot of dialogue. So that, so, so I could use him in my corner. Like when they started telling me to get acting lessons, when they put me on the show, I would just call Greg and Greg would talk to the executive producer and try to explain to them like, Hey, this is what you need to do with this guy. Cause he's not this, he's not what you are wanting him to be. You're going to have to have him do this, you know? So, um, <laughs> Less is more meant less lines and just stand there and look good. Fluff <laughs> my hair and, and walk around and throw basketballs at the wall. And like, there was so, it was so silly. Some of the stuff, like I threw a basketball, I got, I got mad. Cause my wife was cheating on me. So I threw a basketball at the wall, which broke my back cause I'd probably made a producer mad. And so they <laughs> stuck me in a wheelchair. And so when I stuck, <laughs> they stuck me in a wheelchair. And so I'm, Wheeling around in a wheelchair being punished because I don't know my lines. So,
0: <laughs> that's so Apologies good.
1: to anybody that I worked with <laughs>
0: during any of the <laughs>
1: soap operas because well, they, they probably are have... like, that son of a. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have two great soap opera names Daniel Moody, right? From yeah, One Life. To... Yeah. yeah. And then, was it Antonio Lopez? Uh, Fitzgerald. Fitzgerald. So I oh like, like sound adopted. Like you're so...
1: yeah, yeah. So that one was for passions. Passions. And that, so all of the people that were in my family were actually Latino. So they were all like cute. Like the yeah. uh, lady that played my mom was Cuban, and they were they all had like backgrounds. And then I guess I was the Irish Fitzgerald part that. <laughs> got spit out somewhere else, but like, somebody's
0: all, uh, a child in a yes. soap opera.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, and, and that was a, that was a different without that show actually had like witches and, and i had taken a break. So once I, once I finished my stint with ABC, I quit the business altogether. I, I couldn't do it anymore. I was like, I, cause every weekend while well, I was in New York, cause I didn't want to move back to New York. I was like, what? cause I'd already been there, you know, for, for the print stuff. And, um, and see, that's
0: weird. The soap opera was filmed in New York, not L.A.
1: Right? Yeah. So, so that that particular one. So, I was in L.A. at the time and was just basically just getting paid to work out and so yeah. and do print stuff. So that's when that happened. And they essentially, I, I had to make a move without you know my choice. I had to make that move to New York, and usually. I've said this before, but usually when I resist something, that means something, it, it, it's probably a good learning thing for me, so I better just keep my mouth shut and put my nose to the grindstone and do whatever it is that God wants me to do because I, I'm, I'm either going to get smacked in the butt or punched right in the nose, so I, I better figure it out quick. So that's where... Um, Retic, you know, the reticence of moving there actually turned out to be a good thing. But it, it I, once that timed out, I, I had to live in. I lived on at twenty four West sixty eighth, and I worked on sixty sixth Street right there. Okay, um, and so uh, after like the first six months, I couldn't do it at the city anymore. So I moved up to um, right on the Connecticut New York line in a little t- town called North Salem, and I found oh, yeah. this great old opera house. Old old opera house. I mean, from like the eighteen nineties or something. And I rented the back two floors. There was a tack shop, like an English tack shop, in the middle, and then upstairs there was like this really cool antique store. And then there was an artist that lived above, and um, aw- it was awesome. Like the hunt, the you know, the fox hunts would come right outside my door every Sunday morning. Like if I opened my door and ran out to food, I'd get hit by <laughs> like horses and dogs, hounds. So, um, but it was that. Cool, And like David Letterman lived across the street. <laughs> so it was kind of, he had this big sprawling estate. So, um, so I only had to be in the city a couple days a week. So it was great for me. So then I, I developed a relationship with all these cool guys at the bow shop. Cause I'd picked up traditional bow hunting when I was in Idaho at one point. And, um, so all these guys with all these knowledge were right there in Connecticut and upstate or I wouldn't even call it upstate New York, but right on that Connecticut, New York line. Um, and so I would go spend all my time with these 60 and 70 and 80 year old men in this bow shop that were making their own bows and arrows and all this stuff. And so I'd go to like 3d tournaments with them on the weekend and, and, um, got all this knowledge from that point forward of like hunt, you know, to expound my hunting range, just from duck hunting and, and fishing all the way into more of like big game, like deer and bear and elk and everything else. And so learn from these gurus of bow in the bow hunting world. And, um, wow. So that was great. So that's why I say, usually when I'm reticent to something, there's something for me to learn. So that, that part worked out great. And so that's when I, at the end of my contract with ABC, I, I packed what I had up in my pickup and in, in Connecticut, in New York, and moved and got to Montana as fast as I could. Now, so you... I had my place out by McAllister near Ennis, and then um, now and, why Montana? You know, I don't know. I I, I had brought. Um, my, my parents and I had brought my grandmother, my mom's mom, on a trip out here, and we'd gone to a couple of powwows um, over in Lame Deer, um, Montana, over 4th of July. And then I came back for Crow Fair, which was in August. And doing that trip, I felt grounded. Have you ever been somewhere where you're just like, wow, this, I feel at home here or I feel at peace? Yes. And so... I can appreciate cities and I can appreciate what cities have to offer. I just don't know that I'm necessarily built for a city. So that's where I I felt more grounded in nature and outdoors. I think probably from my back, you know, where I grew up. So it felt a lot like Tennessee because there was, but lots of less people.
0: Yeah. McAllister's small. I mean, Ennis is small and McAllister is a blip of Ennis.
1: And and at that time, this is 1995. So you're you're you're. There was less people than there are there now. I mean, there's four times as many people in McAllister, and there's still nobody there. But there's four times as <laughs> many as there were. So um so it's so with that said, that's I think that was the draw. I, initially, I was looking around Dayton, Wyoming, and Sheridan, Wyoming, and. Um, if I did need to get to an airport to go back to Tennessee or something, I figured, you know, to visit my parents, I, I, I figured it was easier to fly in and out of somewhere like Bozeman. Yeah,
0: Bozeman. Sure.
1: Once I came to Bozeman, my, my aunt, who was a realtor at the time, the one that I spoke about earlier, um, she just called the Bozeman Realty Company. I think she was, she was with the ERA, and she called the ERA Uh, office in Bozeman and said, can I have someone that hunts? And she got on the phone with a guy named Dan Reddick, who was an elk hunter and a bow hunter and introduced, made the introduction. And then I became friends with him, still friends with him today and uh, ended up working for him. He uh, he ended up getting an outfitting business for elk hunting and I, I helped him with that and set up, you know, a lot of stuff that he did for his first camp and stuff. Uh, which used to be Wapiti Basin Outfitters. So I went to a lot of the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation shows with him and that kind of thing to kind of promote his his business. And uh, a lot of the guys actually that I, back in Connecticut, New York, uh, Jim Costello and those guys came out. They would come out and hunt here in Montana. So it introduced, like it made this grouping of people from Tennessee to New York, to Connecticut, to California, to all these people I've known to to come out here and, you know, partake in, fun stuff so.
0: it, and it's funny montana then early mid-90s people weren't going there yet they didn't have the especially idaho the california people flooding into the state and leaving so you coming into that state even from a you know you were born and raised tennessee but now you're coming from new york and did anybody look at you cross like what are you doing here you're not a native montana
1: no uh-uh. okay because I, I think i i mean i i I try to be wherever I go. I try to be the gray man and not stand out. I just want to I not necessarily blend in because I don't. I don't want to be um, with that
0: hair and good looks. How in the hell are you blending
1: I, in? I don't know. I, I think Legends of the Fall just came out, so that's everybody called me like, oh, "Oh, Tristan over here," or whatever his name, Brad Pitt's name was in the show, or whatever. But that it's funny that the 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 way that the surges are happening. And even more so now with Yellowstone, you know, the TV show mm-hmm. Yellowstone, the biggest surge of all for this area. But I, that, I think me moving here was right on the heels of Legends of the Fall and right around the time of um, A River Runs Through It. Okay. So, so Montana was definitely getting a surge, but that's not what made me. I didn't move here so I could play a... Uh, actor or play Brad Pitt.
0: Right, you
1: know? right. So it, it that it was just more of a spiritual thing for me or a soulful thing, I should say. So, um so with that said, that the the surges that come do come from move. I mean as as important as movies or images or picture, you know. I mean, you've seen some of the Arthur Elgort stuff like Yeah. even I've seen the documentary that Colorado Cowboy that he did on Bruce Ford who was a world champion bareback rider like awesome. Like okay, that's the that's the kind of knitted community that I was looking for, just because of the way that I, you know, growing up as a as an athlete, as a hunter, as a, a as you know, somebody who had to get all this adrenaline out of me in some respects. You know, those are the things that I was putting myself into situations that probably should have killed me more times than not, and and. But that's what life was about to me at that point in time. You know, I didn't have a wife, I didn't have any kids at the time, and that was the, those were the things that I was interested in, and I thought that were, you know, going to make me the man that I wanted to be, um, and then somebody that my children would look up to eventually because I had all these life experiences and right. hopefully I, mean, I can have some sort of knowledge onto them. I don't know if I have or can, but
0: I mean, Christ, <laughs> by ninety-five, you've got more experiences going on than most people will have in their lifetime.
1: Well, and, and, and there again, I feel blessed because I, it wasn't anything that it was forced. Like my, right. my buddy in Tennessee, my best friend in Tennessee always says there's no beauty in things that are forced or misunderstood. And I think, and I've lived by that, I think as much as I possibly can, but it's usually when I, like I say, it's usually when I force myself to go into the uncomfortable is when the flow happens. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't want to get too woo wooey, but it's sure. just, I, you know, and I also don't want to lose the magic of talking about it, but it's, it's just, uh, it's, what it's it just is. weird. Yeah. I don't know. It's, I can't, I can't, it's, it's inexplicable, I guess. So,
0: <laughs> How did you take to Montana Were you absolutely head over heels and you're like, I'm, I'm here. I'm putting roots down.
1: Yeah. I'm like, I'm where I should be and doing what I want. So I just took time off and enjoyed, you know, the, fruits of my labor for the time that I did what I didn't want to do in, in New York at the, you know, for that two and a half years and, and, uh, being on a TV show and was able to immerse myself in nature for that, for the next two years, year and a half, whatever it was. Right.
0: Until passions calls.
1: No, nah, I got a, no, I got a call from, uh, my buddy, Larry Shapiro, who was my, uh, he, he's an entertainment lawyer. So he did like contracts and stuff like that. So I got a call from him and, uh, he said, uh, you, I got the, there's another show They're They're casting for it. Do you want to do it? And I'm like, no. And he goes, well, they want to talk to you. So you, you need to go read for it. And I'm like, eh, no, no. And so he's like, Let me see what I can do. Because he did move he's a movie producer. So he, he handled um Paul Walker was one of his clients. Machen Amick, uh, who was on Twin Peaks at the time, was one of his clients, and then me, who I don't know why, but he, he said he liked me because I wasn't typical. I wasn't the actor that was like, Oh, I want to act and then I wanna direct and then I wanna do this and then I wanna do that. Like I I um I told him, I said, I don't like acting he goes i like you like i wasn't going to take you on but i'm going to take you on just to, you know it's kind of probably a challenge to him
0: i want to
1: <laughs> still friends i just spoke to him last week super nice guy and that was years ago so you're figuring that's back in what 99 something like that uh-huh. so during that time here you know like i said i immersed myself in nature i was i was working for an outfitter doing what i wanted to do i was hunting fishing um started working some various ranches around the area. Um, a lot of the guys that I worked ranches with rodeoed. So I picked, you know, started rodeoing. I came to it late, but like embraced it, rode bucking horses, did that kind of thing. And then here I get this call kind of like the other ones, like get the mood. You want to move, you wanna move to LA? And I was like, Ugh. so, um, ended up, uh, meeting with Marnie the casting director and Larry and her worked out a deal and then okay here I'm thrust onto Young and the Restless on CBS and now those you you talk about upping a game so that was filmed in LA but like those actors that had been on that show been on there for years um, like Melody Scott Thomas and and those actors and I do call them actors because they were I mean Soap operas are hard to do because, like I said, because of the dialogue, the amount of dialogue and you're working every single day. Like if you're on an episodic, for those people that don't know, you're working for um, 10 to 15 weeks and then you get to have the rest of the time off to go do a movie or relax and then you pick it up again if your show gets picked up and it's it's somewhat easier on the grind. Uh, The soap operas are a grind, so... So, and then, like I said, there's some people that had been on, I think there was a lady that was on One Life to Live that had been on there since, for 30 years or something. Oh, so it was crazy. Yeah. But um, but anyway, Ed Scott was the producer. He had hired me. The The lady that was the writer didn't approve me. There was this big fight because uh, the, the guy was like a, uh, the character was like a, some cor- sort of, uh, Uh, tech guy and so they wanted him to have like these frosted blonde tips and glasses and a nose ring and so I had a fake nose ring and glasses and then I wouldn't dye my hair because I was still rodeoing at the time and I was like I'm not going to take off my hat and then have frosted tips on my hair so they would would put hair mascara in my hair and I had to not say that I was rodeoing because NBC wouldn't insure someone who's doing dangerous stuff on the weekends so Um, so that's how that kind of played itself out in the fact that I got fired after seven months, but the day I got fired, I got fired by passions, which was, on uh, NBC, um, and then was on that for, uh, another two, two and a half year stint and then quit the business altogether again and yeah. And just kind of. Went about my merry way back to Montana and and you know t- did what I did. So
0: when you said you were done, like what was the okay? This is it. I, I'm over you guys. I'm going home. What was it? Uh, it, it just finished.
1: I, I felt like I. I it, now that I'm talking to you, thinking about it, it's like every two years I have this molting process. You know that I go through that. I'm like I don't know. Okay, I have done enough on that. Yeah. So I'll move on to this or I'll move on to that. Um, so it, so I think it was just more or less the the fact that I, I was satiated for whatever reason and was ready to do something else. So when I came back to Montana, um, uh, I, I had some friends that were producing the show Duck Dynasty and stuff and they had started asking me once I got back home, you know, Hey, can you do these shows for discovery channel? And I was like, mm no, no, not interested. And I had right after, right on the heels of that. Um, I had done a, a, one movie with, uh, where I played a Navy seal, which was great. Cause I met a lot of great people, but, um, it was called shadow warriors. Uh, and it was with Hulk Hogan and, uh, Carl Weathers from Rocky. who was like one of my heroes. And, yeah. and it was, uh, uh, real Navy SEAL named Mike White who played my brother on the show and that Martin Cove was in it. So, you know, the sensei from, uh, uh what's that Ralph Macchio? Uh, kid. Yeah, the kid. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So, so great cast, good, good people. Um, and so I did that movie with those guys and then ended up meeting a lot of other, Guys or SEALs, and that kind of blossomed into friendships. Like, because those guys' mentality, along with Rodeo Cowboys' mentality, same people, different jobs. Laird Hamilton, big wave surfer, same person, different job. You know, you Hell's Angels, same person, different whatever you uh, job. (laughs) So, (laughs) it's so they kind of fit the mold of the people that I had been surrounding myself with. Like I said, when I was on most of the shows, um that I mentioned I was more friends with the guys that were running, you know, behind the camera and the guys that were the gaffers and the grips and that kind of, those were the kind of people that I assimilated with more so than the actors and actresses, all great people. But I just felt more of a kinship to the real people on the show. This, you know, the stunt guys, all that. So I knew some of them through the rodeo world anyway. So it kind of, it worked out good, but, um, but yeah, so after I'd done that, kind of did put, I did, I put it all up, started doing other jobs like here again in Montana, the ranch stuff, um, getting involved with a lot of horse industry pieces. And then, um, Scott Gurney from Gurney Productions calls and says, we want you to do this. They called a few times and I was like, nah, I just don't want to do it, man. And he's from Louisiana and he, so we're, we had a lot of things in common. Great, great guy. And, uh, Finally, he just wore me down. My wife and I were out on a ride um, by our house and on a horseback ride. And finally, I'm like, okay, whatever. He goes, okay, we got tickets for you. You're leaving. It was a Friday. He goes, you're leaving Monday to Africa. And I'm like, holy cow. Like, it was like a whirlwind. Oh, but, Jesus. Um, but did that. Um, we went to Africa. Then we went to Florida, I believe. And then, um, no, we went to Alaska's first, sorry, Alaska. Then from Alaska, we went to, um, to Africa to do lions. And then we did gators and crocs in Florida. So I did this show. It's called feeding frenzy where I hosted the show, um, in a, bo- I would be in a box. And so it, I would film myself and then there, narr- you know, talk kind of, it was like when survivor man was out and bear grill. So they were kind of doing a mix of the two. And, um, Uh, So we, uh, doing those three installments, we were supposed to eventually go do tigers and wolves and great whites and all this other stuff. And in between the, the first three and the next three um, I'm home and we just come back from roping. And uh, one of our horses that we had, uh, one of our stud horses, the barometric pressure went up and went down real quick, which causes their, it's like women with, Pregnancies, yep, and that changes. You know, it'll push the baby up. Well, sometimes it affects horses, and so their guts. Right, and so their guts, their guts twist, and they can't throw up. So they, so they colic. It's called colic, and so w- we all pull in to the driveway, um, and I've got two other buddies with me, my wife, uh, my other buddy's wife, and. Um, we're all here. And I'm like, great, this is not good. Cause he had mud up his nose and in his eyes. And so I run him in the round pen.
0: And now is this your uh, guys' his horse? Mm-hmm. Okay.
1: Run him in the round pen. Didn't even unload the horses that were in our trailers. Cause I'm like, uh Oh, this is like, we got to do something. So my wife, I sent her to the neighbors to get banamine cause the banamine will relax the muscles on, in the horse's intestines, hopefully. Um, I run him into the round pen and he's just kind of lethargic. Like he's not hardly moving at all or anything. And I'm, what they want to do is lay down. But when they lay down, it's almost like a kiss that, you know, it'll twist it even more. Mm-hmm. So nothing can pass. So um, the horse is facing me because everybody's like, you know, after the fact, I'll tell you what the people are like, what are you doing behind a horse? And I'm like, <laughs> I wasn't behind him, but he was facing me. And I turned around and said, Hey, told my, buddy my buddy bob i said that to his son i said can you grab my phone on the console of the truck so i can call the vet and before i could get out vet the horse spun like lightning jumped up out of the air and cracked out like an nfr bucking horse and i got a foot to the side of the face here and a foot to the back of the head which launched me about two and a half feet and i landed on my elbows and knees and luckily it didn't knock me out but um but uh you know after being stunned for a moment on the ground and hearing people yell my name from the side of the round pen, I jumped up real quick and I grabbed my face just instinctively. And this, so you, there's I've got two scars that go down the side of my face, and so I grabbed my face, and this was like in by my neck, like it was like down here, and all my teeth were falling out, like all these. So I'm just like holding stuff in. My other buddy had the forethought because they used to rodeo too, so they had run to the to the house to grab frozen blueberries or peas or something in a towel. And my wife's coming back across the pasture in the neighbor's pasture and sees all this melee going on and people just like running everywhere. And she's like, "Uh Oh, so we literally jumped right in the car, went to the hospital. Bob, who I just mentioned, his wife is the head ER nurse. He called ahead and said, you might want to call a helicopter because I was losing so much blood. Um, they had the wherewithal to actually get the helicopter. We were driving like 110 to the hospital, which is 30 minutes away. Um, but not to sound tough, but like it didn't hurt. Like I think my adrenaline took over, like it never hurt. It was just one of those things. And so um, horse ended up, my buddy ended up taking the horse and he ended up passing away um, on once he got into the vet in Livingston. And then I was on a helicopter ride and luckily I had this really great trauma surgeon from Vietnam who looked like a Vietnam trauma surgeon. He wears Hawaiian shirts every day and he's got these really big, thick Coke bottle glasses. (laughs) So they (laughs) flew me to Billings and he's like, oh yeah, no problem. But I'm literally having like the ER, the ER doctor in Livingston is crying. The guy trying to put the IV in me is shaking so bad that I'm like kicking the table with my spurs on because he keeps poking me trying to get the IV in. they can't get the IV in. My father in laws crying. My wife, my wife's mom was an ER nurse, and she was like, "You better hold it together, or they will not let you on the helicopter with him." So she had to like suck it up. And I'm sitting there, laying on the table, picking teeth out and laying them on my chest like on one of those blue things they give you at the dentist, and then sucking all the blood out of my mouth with the shards of bone that were still coming out. So, uh, an eventful and it, oddly enough, it all happened on eight eight oh eight. Yeah. right about 8 o'clock at night so it was just a weird happenstance so um, and then that transpired into this cool story that I can tell now because as I was coming to out of the hospital so I was after the surgery they induced me into a coma for 3 or 4 days and, and uh, I can remember being in the coma and I remember these 2 little girls like at at my face, like, I don't even think I've told this story much, to, except for family. But, like, I can remember the two little girls at my face, and they were going, Wake up. Wake up, daddy!" And I'm like, what What kind of meds are they giving me that, you know, I'm hearing voices and seeing these little girls in my face and stuff like that. But um, needless to say, later now I realized that because all of a sudden it hit me one day, and I looked at my wife, and I'm like, oh, my gosh that was Hannah and Hunter. So I've got a son and a daughter, but Hunter had long, had the hair down to his elbows. Like he had really long hair. So they looked almost the same. So it was, I thought, you know, in my state, I thought it was two little girls, but it was Hunter. It must've been Hunter and Hannah or what their little spirits, but it was just a cool little God wink to say like, you're on the right path. Just keep going where you're going, doing what you're doing. And, shut up and don't <laughs> don't fight me <laughs>
0: so. i mean so when you come out of that coma i mean and they induce it so that thank god they're you know in control of the situation mm-hmm. what are you thinking i mean that's a i mean it's it's like a car accident you know it's it's a plane accident it, it's that's massive trauma
1: We're, yeah I don't, I don't i don't i really i was i don't think i don't know Maybe that's my problem. I don't think enough. I just don't, I didn't really, I don't, <laughs> I don't know. I was there. I remember waking up and my, my wife's cousin Jade was there. And he was like an all American football player and wrestler, like, you know, really. And I was thinking again, like, here I'm hallucinating why is Jade sitting in this ICU room? And I remember Batman was on the TV. Those were the first things I remember. And I was like looking up and he was like, how are you doing? And I was like, you know, I couldn't talk. I was wired sure. shut and I thinged down my throat and, um, uh, and they called Darcy and her dad in and stuff. And I remember asking him for a sheet of paper. And I, I wrote down like, how's the horse? And Darcy, you know, said uh, he passed away. And then the next thing I wrote, cause her dad was like, is he okay? Is he okay? And I had written something down and I'd handed it to her and she goes, Oh yeah, yeah, he's okay. And she like folds it up and puts it away. And he's like, what'd he say? What'd he say? What'd he say? And she's like, ah. just cause my bad sense of humor. And she gets, she starts to read and she's looking at her dad and she goes, if anyone asks, I'm in here for a penis reduction. <laughs> so they were like, yeah, there's nothing wrong with them. They were worried that my, <laughs> my brain's going to, Oh, he's going to be hurt. He's going to be traumatized and he's not going to be able to talk or think. And
0: <laughs>
1: um,
0: Nope, he's just in here for a normal all American reduction. Yeah. <laughs> uh, taking it down to a 10 instead of a 40. <laughs> I don't
1: have to bruise my knees, but, you know.
0: Um, but. I've got to believe your athletic background had to help you having a strong neck strong shoulders you know for that kind of face trauma i'm sure that blow to your skull being having some strength and muscle in you had to help you
1: i don't know i I, there again is another one of those little god wink things because they said if it had gone two centimeters higher between my nose like my palate and my nose Mm -hmm. it would have been my brain cavity so it would have been and then plus if it had been my wife in there who would have gotten in there first thing it would where my jaw is is her temple yeah right so she'd have been donezo so um but it it, like I said I never I never had any pain I have still yet to have pain I can't I don't have any feeling in the left side of my face so there's always food on my face so if you ever go eat with me just tell me (laughs) wipe that food off your face you slob but um my wife has to tell me all the time, or my kids are like, that. food." Yeah. But um, I've never had any pain. The only pain that I had was when I was wired shut, and anybody that's been wired shut can attest to the fact that if you yawn or sneeze, that's probably the most like. Even if you push your jaw up from the bottom while you're yawning, there's that you can't do it. Like it, it stretches those wires, and that that was the. That's probably the. I mean, it brings tears in my eyes thinking about it now, oh. but it. That's the only thing. But luckily I, I had some, two other buddies that were professional bull riders that had – they were wired shut at the same time I was. So they were um, – they were – there people that were taking care of them were, you know, sharing recipes of what to blend up and what tastes good in the blender for my wife to, to, to fix me things. Because I had to do – because I couldn't – all the front – so I think I had – eight teeth knocked out so they were the top and the bottom okay so they had to go in and replace all the bone through multiple surgeries but um I was gonna ask, I just,
0: how many surgeries and how what a year i think it was like
1: six surgeries over the course of like a year and a half to two years and then so i would have to use a horse syringe to put the food in my mouth and then push it back in it was just you know
0: Oh, i bet you were fun to go out to dinner with
1: no, yeah, we had these great restaurants that actually would, like, blend the food. Like, if we went to the Mexican restaurant in Livingston, which the same waitress is still there, and she always, you know, remembers, because we had eaten there that night before we came home after rope, and and then uh, we could still go back in there. But she, um, she was nice enough to be one of the, like, four places that would actually blend up. If I wanted a cheese burrito or something and salsa, they would blend it up in the blender and bring it to me and let me – do my thing right there. So it was, it was kind of, everybody was, you know, pretty nice about being able to help out because they realized that. Now, if I didn't have a cowboy hat on and I was in a store or bed, bath and beyond or something like that, and people must have thought I was a crackhead because they would literally follow us around the store because I had no teeth in the top or bottom right. for that amount of time. I couldn't wear a flipper because it didn't feel good and I couldn't talk. So, um, yeah, I, I, I was probably a sight to behold, but, um, <laughs> But, yeah, I didn't steal anything. Needless to say,
0: <laughs> what's going through your head in regards of okay, where's my career now? I just had I this horse knock me on my ass. That right, <laughs> right. Didn't. You didn't was, have one. You were done with. You're done with TV, and you're you know. Well, I did on- have to go back to LA and go
1: with Deirdre Gurney Scott's wife, who was also one of the producers of the show, and go meet with the people from Discovery Channel on to so they could see see my face, you know, to make sure, but I did have these big scars on my face, but I had got them from an animal and we were supposed to be working with animals on the show. And I guess they didn't savvy it and said, no, we'll, no, we're good. So, so I, we came back here and so we started, um, we pivoted again and um, my wife and I, um, her her dad used to ride bareback horses and was a steer wrestler and used to run around. He was like one of the uh, kind of a, an adopted brother of the Linderman family, which is an, a famous rodeo family. And, and so he he ran around with those guys and rodeoed with them. And then her mom was a barrel racer, and they her family owned um, Stacy's Old Faithful Steakhouse, which was like one of the last rodeo cowboy cowboy bars in Southwest Montana. So on the way to big sky and it just sold, um, needs to to some other people that we know, but I think it had been in her family over 60 years. Oh. Um, so Stacy was her grandpa and that was where all the MSU rodeo team, people like Forey Smith that's on Yellowstone. Now who's a friend of ours. Like they used to go there. Like that's where everybody went with Stacy's. So Stacy's are the cat's paw in Bozeman. So, um, So that, that, uh, we took all of, you know, the knowledge that I had from the rodeo world and Darcy's family's interests. She rode hunter jumpers and, and didn't rodeo, but she could, she could could ride anything. She could, you know, she was, she's our Bronco man at the house. I put her on the bucket stuff now, so she, she can (laughs) handle it better than I can. But, um, we we ended up getting with some other friends and starting a company and started producing events like rodeo events and team roping events and so we did that for seven years after that like after I got kicked that was our job like we that's that's what we did and um, how
0: did that go was it successful
1: what yeah yeah we, we we enjoyed it um, but it made its turn and morphed itself into a. Uh, marketing agency because we were doing all of our own marketing for promoting for, it. Yeah. So we, yeah. So we did it in, in multiple States. I think we did eight different States um, where we God, would take Chris, these around every weekend. So we did that for, for seven years. And some of the people that were our sponsors were like, who's doing your marketing who's doing your ads and who's doing your photos and who's doing this. And I was like, well, we are like, we just, we're just doing it or we just, bootstrap it and did it so um needless to say got got hired by uh tyler magnus who's a a professional team roper to help him with parts of his he had a show that had already been going and we started doing some stuff for him on the marketing end of websites and logos and graphics and um had done a couple of things for ty yost who's now at the top of his game with the world series of team roping and all that and uh all of the ropings in arizona that he produces and Helomatic and some of the other sponsors that worked with us, started, it morphed itself into a job. So, right. and then that graphics and marketing, like we worked with uh, that company bottle breacher that Eli Crane um, owns that was on shark tank. And now he's a, I think he's a sitting Senator now in Arizona uh, or Congressman. But um, like I say, through the Navy SEAL community and the rodeo community, we got busy. So like when we hung that shingle out as a marketing firm that we took it on full force, like we do everything else. And the rodeo business was morphed into an, uh, an ad agency of sorts. And that's how the photography started again. I picked the camera up during the, you know, cause I would thank the people that would come and to our events and I would take pictures at the events and then I would, they would show up the next weekend and I'd hand them a picture of themselves and they're like, Oh, thank you know. Thank you, like this is awesome. Like for free, because I was like, I just wanted to say thank you. You know, that's not you know. People always want pictures of themselves or you know their buckles and all that kind of stuff. So um, that's how that started.
0: And then, what was it like picking up the camera again? I mean,
1: I just I didn't think about it too much. Like I say, I, like I said, that's probably my downfall. I should think more, but I, I just letting happenstance happen. And and did you like shoot said, digital? Uh, and yeah. Well, so Bob, the guy that was here when I got kicked, um, he had a, a Nikon, I think it was a D90 or something. And he said, here, try this out. And he had like a long lens. And I was like, well, that looks cool. Like I'll try it. Like I'll do something cool with it. So, um, started doing that and, and taking pictures and, uh, you know, with his and then ended up buying one. And I was like, yeah, this, this is, cool. I think I could figure this out. And then, um, I didn't miss a spot, but, uh, I, I had done, um, when I was rodeoing at the time, Ralph Lauren, um, through Glick, um, my agency that I wasn't modeling anymore, but they, they were doing, uh, her Brits was going to do a Ralph Lauren campaign like a, a with Leticia Costa. They were going to do the, the campaign. And, um, I had to fly down and meet with her Brits and or I drove down to LA to meet her Brits. So, Cause we were going to, I was going to do more of like the production and things and bring all the horses and coordinate all the cowboys and kind of this world that I was living in. Like, here's what you want to do. Here's the backdrop. We're going to set the backdrop for you with all of the production end of things. And subsequently they were like, Oh, we want to use you in front of the camera too. And so I had a, a buddy with me, um, Cowboy buddy, and he grew up in Idaho, and all of a sudden, the next thing he knows, he's thrust into this world of like going with me down to L.A. to Herberts' place, and he didn't know who Herberts was, but he laughs because he'll tell the story. His name is Jeremy, and he, I'm on the roof, and I didn't think anything of it because I'm like I've had to do not not odd stuff, but similar things. Sure, we're on the roof with Herberts' assistant. And he's taking pictures, test pictures for this shoot we're getting ready to do. And I'm in my cowboy hat, but I've got a rope, and I'm roping. And he's like, "Um, I hate to ask you to do this, but can you rope um in your underwear?" And I'm like, "Ah," and I I was thinking to myself, "Like, you got to be kidding me." But whatever. Like, I I said, I said, I was, I'm gonna help you out. I said, I'm just gonna. I had boots on, so here I am. My Jeans are down past my boots. My boots are sticking up above my jeans. Jeremy is sitting over there with smacked, with his mouth wide open looking at me like, what are we doing? And I'm roping. And the guy kept going, look up, look up, rope up. And so I'm swinging my rope, but I'm looking up and I'm further looking up. And finally, I just turn around because I'm all the way up roping. And I think he was trying to skylight me against the sky you know we're back like me against the yeah. sky finally i just look down i go what am i roping ducks like what am i doing and he's like i think we got it i think we got it. nervously he's like, <laughs> <and I'm> like <laughs> so jeremy's just sitting there like this is crazy like this is weird like do you have to do this all the time just don't i was like don't ask this is whatever
0: welcome to my way, world
1: <laughs> we we fly from from la to new york to go to Ralph Lauren. So I I dropped him off at Click. So he's talking to my friends at Click. I dropped Jeremy off at Click. I go across town to the east side. I'm at the Ralph Lauren offices and their, you know, their big spot that they had over there on the east side of mm-hmm. Manhattan and cowboy head to toe, you know, but as I, as Jeremy and I are walking around town, people are yeehaw, yeehaw. But then we'll look at them and then they turn away real quick. Like, I didn't say that. It wasn't me. So I'm I'm about sick of yeehaw, and Jeremy's about sick of yeehaw, and Jeremy's not little either. So, like, we were about yeehawed out. So we're on the fight by this time. But I get finally get over to Ralph Lauren. I'm talking to him about the shoot that they want to do. Anyway, the shoot didn't end up happening for whatever reason. But I got the epiphany during the time in New York. I'm like, people have no idea about cowboys and ranch life and real unless they were familiar with like Bruce was friends with Kurt Marcus and Kurt Marcus's photography is like you know one of a kind like his books and his uh, the 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 ranches that he went to in Nevada and all the different places like the that's that was the life like Jeremy's uncle was in a lot of Kurt's books so that's how it's small world so um I get the epiphany to be like, I, I need to show people what cowboys are like, or like how like real cowboys, rodeo cowboys, like this is. So um, I'm like, I got to call somebody. So, so Jeremy, a buddy that he had used to rodeo with, um, cause he was down in Wyoming when I was rodeoing. So he called uh, another friend of ours in Arizona, whose sister was dating JW Hart, who was a, PBR bull rider
0: okay,
1: at the top of his game. And I'm like, I got to follow JW for a year. I want to show people like this is the life because it back then professional bull riding, because these are your Navy seals, Delta force guys of the sport of rodeo, yes. like balls to the wall. Crazy. I equated it. And this is how I sold it for the documentary was I said, think of Motley Crue. With cowboy hats on, and they're like, "What do you mean?" And I'm like, "Trash hotel rooms, brawls, like all out chasing mayhem. broads,
0: yeah, drinking, yes. good time, uh, yeah. yeah,
1: like all of that and more." So they're like, "Okay, so talk to Larry." I end up doing this documentary film um, uh, for over the course of a year and follow JW through his his season. Um, it ends up getting drawered, Like Larry had it like a thing with HBO or something and it ends up getting drawed because I I couldn't, (laughs) by the end of it, all the guys were like, I don't want this out there. Um, there was nothing bad in it. It wasn't anything bad, but it was at the point to where everybody's getting to that age where they're like, Oh, I really want to start a family and do these other things. And, but needless to say, I made some great friends out of it and, and, uh, got through that part. So that's when, I had starting to learn had to teach myself to learn how to edit in Final Cut Pro I was shooting it editing it I was doing the whole thing and I was hiring guys that were on the show that I was on it was when I was on passion so I was hiring all the gaps and Griffers on the weekend to go like to Oklahoma or Dallas or New Mexico to, to these PBr events to help because they were great they were adept at doing what they were doing and then I could bring it all home and edit it and um, So I did the whole thing and um, had some friends show first showing me how to do final cut. And then I realized that the guy that was showing me was like going six steps forward to go two steps back. And then I figured it out. I stayed up all night one night and I was like, that son of a gun's been messing with me. So I figured it out quick how to do it. And I let him go and then taught myself Photoshop and all that kind of stuff to help put this piece together. So skip back forward um, through the photography part, I kind of knew how to do the Photoshop. So when I, when digital came around, I was like, Well, this is easy because I've done actual Lightroom stuff with film. And then this made it easy because I was like, Holy cow, like this is a game changer. Like digital to now, like, and I still respect film, but like I can deliver faster, I can deliver oh. better, I can, like, there's no question. So, um, so that's how that to get to your point back to that point in a roundabout way, that's where the transition was easy because I think with that digital, I realized, oh, I already have these skills with somewhat of Photoshop, Final Cut Pro, and I just morphed that into helping me with my work. And then I relied on a lot of the contacts that I'd already had through the industry over the years since I was, what, 19, 20. And then here I am now in my almost forty. So I just called all the people that I was still friends with that are new and said, hey, I just hung my shingle out as a full-time photographer, and then I just started working. So I was, like, lucky. So it was, you know, there there again, it just kind of has flown, you know, formed itself into what it is now, but it's, you know, I'm probably missing a lot of stuff, but I just – People, when I tell stories, people are like, wait, that's not, how,
0: did, how does
1: this fit into the timeline? And I'm like, just, I don't know. I don't know.
0: Just it, go with me. Yeah. Okay, who did you lean on when you said, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go buy some gear. I got to go buy some stuff. Like, where where am I going? Who am I talking to?
1: Well, first I was talking to my buddy, Bob, and then a great camera shop in Bozeman. Like, I go to Bozeman Camera, and they have everything. It's like a small b and I mean, it's. Okay like for rentals, for anything else. So I actually switched to Canon. Um, uh, and through that, through, through Canon, I've been able to work myself out of the, uh, up to full frame to the pro cameras, you know, using the, the other, you know, the more regular stuff that was affordable prior. And then as I got jobs, I would start reinvesting that money back into the equipment that I felt like I needed and you know what, I don't really feel that, I think that's a crutch for a lot of people, including myself at the time, because I don't, I mean, I've got buddies that take pictures of cell phones that sell the prints for $1,500. So, you know, guys I went to college with that just have this weird avant-garde style of shooting, and it, I shouldn't say weird, it's just different than mine, but it's, mm-hmm. it's great, it's art, nonetheless, and you don't need all that equipment you don't need all the whistles and bells it's it's your eye and it's like it's like we talked about circle back to that emotive part of it it's what you're emoting to show the audience right so
0: when yeah. did you start to find your style when you when you became full-time did it take you a couple of years to kind of this is a Chris, you know photo
1: it's not there again. It's not something that I focus on or think about or try to develop. It just kind of developed itself. I think with, with Instagram, cause I, I got an Instagram account a long time ago and I was like, I don't, re- I'm not a social media person. Like I dabbled with Facebook at the beginning just to keep with, up in touch with friends from high school and college. And then that kind of lot, lot you know, there's the lackluster and then my wife had Instagram and she's like, Oh, this is the next big thing. And so I got the Instagram and then i put a few pictures on it and then I just put it aside for like a year and a half. And then I started getting work and then the people that I was working with, like whether it was Mossy Oak or the hunt outdoor industry, people were like, can you post to like, you know, it'll just help us. And then they would, so then when I started posting, they would share my stuff and then tag me in it. And then that's how I got followers. Like I didn't, I didn't have to like necessarily beat all the bushes. Like it, it, was lucky because it was, I could rely on those other outside or or previous relationships to be able to be like, Hey, if you, you know, go check out my Instagram account. Like I still don't have a website. Yeah. Like I'm <laughs> still under progress. I, I I'm so busy. I don't, which is, it's bad to say, but like, I'm so busy. I don't have time to do a website and I'm such a, uh, I've got that drilled in my head for my dad and my grandpa. If you want something done right, do it yourself mm-hmm. or be, be, um, self-reliant enough to be able to do those things yourself, whether it's building your house or doing this or doing that. Like I I want to take the time to ingest everything and learn as much as I can. And so I don't, I need to do a website. I need to get back on Instagram. I need to do a lot of things, but I just, luckily I'm so busy that I, I really don't have time. That's so
0: okay. That's a good thing to be to busy. So yeah. We talked about it before we hit the start button. Like obviously it's, I can see that you've been in front of the camera and you're behind the camera. It shows. The way you photograph your subjects, you can tell there's a, a care and a natural ability to see to see them well. Like there's a lot of times where if somebody was shooting for like best made when it was around or something, that you could tell that like they hired some kid from Santa Monica who's never been out in the mountains. And he gets out there and he kind of shoots his style and it kind of gets lost I feel I could see you've been around nature for a very long time and you really work your subjects very well.
1: Well, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I appreciate that. I don't know about that as much as I do. Just I'm trying to be as authentic as possible. And I think a lot of the brands that I work with thrive on that authenticity of for their clients, like not my authenticity, like the authenticity of like putting forth things that are real right. and not, you know, made up or in often la la land or seem disjointed. Like I do see a lot of brands, like especially in the Western industry or even, you know, being around the, the having the blessings to be around these tactical guys like the you know the team guys, the seals, and stuff like that, to be able to see if somebody's, you know, in an ad's got their finger on the trigger rather than where it really should be, or if someone's got a rope on a cutting saddle, like you, that you're going to rip that horn off because there's it's not built for roping. Like you, there's little things there that's the minutia that I am super super uh, adherent to the fact that like. If you can get that 1% that knows the difference, then you've got the rest of them, I guess, is my point. Right. But but it still befundles me that sometimes that people will do stuff and put those two things together that I just mentioned. And then people are like, this is amazing. This is the, you know, it's that butt kisser social media thing. But it's just, um, I don't know. I find that difficult to swallow sometimes. But I, who am I to judge? I don't know.
0: So well. Okay, so tell me this: how and how did you get to Fessel? How did how did they get you get that call?
1: Oh, to Filson. Oh, Filson. Um, so uh, that uh, Alex, uh, the creative director at the time, um, Alex Carlson, he uh, reached out via Instagram, and we found out that we had somewhat of the same circles that we had ran. He's my age, uh, ran in. He was in New York. Kind of, we knew a lot of the same people in some regard. Um, and so they had asked me to shoot some stuff for them. I think it was the first time that they'd actually just sent product to someone and said, you just shoot it, produce it for everything. And then, um, I delivered back, went to meet them and then that transpired into a few more jobs. And then Alex had said, Hey, would you, can you come on as to work with us in some form or fashion? and uh, he ended up moving into a higher version of creative direction at the um as he was doing also with the clothing the interiors of the stores like he's a genius when it comes to that stuff like that's his wheelhouse yeah um,
0: the store and, in seattle's beautiful
1: uh, oh my gosh yeah that that's like we always would joke and say that alex's brain exploded and that's what's inside of it. so um so it was great to be a part of that for the amount of the, you know, the amount of time that I was, it's, it, it was more to, to bring an eye to it um, from some, and some sort of respect uh, from the photography standpoint. And um, you know, I did what I did there and, and, and moved on and, and enjoyed it. And it did rely, I did, was able to rely on that inside out thing that I talk about with a lot of people, uh, the wellspring of the nature part of it and the outdoor part of it and the hunting part of it and the Western part of it and the ranch part of it. Like I've lived those things. So it's easier to tell that story. I think sometimes when you've lived the life, uh, not that other people don't do it well, cause you know, there's other great photographers, Arthur Elgort did a great job telling the story of Bruce Ford, uh, that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, I just hope that people look at it and, and like you said, it resonates to the fact of, that, that it is authentic. Like most of the, I guess that's one thing that I've got from Bruce is like everyone I hire are typically models. They're guys that I've rodeoed with worked ranches with used to come to our ropings, like all the, they're the Cowboys in that respect. The people that I hire for outdoor stuff are all the seal guys. I know like I've got, you know, eh. Andy Arabito and, and, and Wolf and all these guys that are like, Hey, you know, if you're in Alaska or you're here in Montana. And they're like, Hey, you want me to take this bag and swim across this ice cold river? And I'm like, yeah. And they just do it. Like there's no, <laughs> there's no, I'm cold. <laughs> I don't want to do this anymore.
0: My fingers are freezing.
1: Like it's, it's, they're men. Like it's like, right. hey, yeah. But yeah. And it shows in the pictures, like that's real guys doing real things.
0: Yeah, that's a so, normal um, day for him. I mean, it's like, yeah, oh. yeah, and that's
1: easy. They're like, yeah, yeah cool. Ice cold water. Who cares? Hell no you one's know.
0: shooting at him, Chris. So it's easy. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I am, but I'm yeah. just it's camera. But, <laughs> it's, so, but, but it's, uh, yeah, it's that, that's what I try to bring to the table in, in, in that respect. And then, you know, with the color grades that I've used and have used and still use and all that kind of stuff, which is frustrating now because now I'm switching again. I'm having to switch cameras again because, I'm, you know, they're getting rid of Everything's going to digital. So this week I'm actually having to make that change. And and the things – and I'm, I use old 1Ds. Like I've got four of these old, old first-generation 1Ds like sitting right here. And the color grades are awesome on them. But, like, I've got a new 1D over here. And Canon, like I reached out to Canon, I go, did you guys change something? They're like, yeah, the color grades changed. Like my, all my presets that I've done for myself in Lightroom, don't they look like daylight and dark. So now I'm going to have to have a bit of a learning curve to go and start editing again the way that, you know, to find the grades of colors. It's time for me to change anyway. So, so you haven't gone to... to mirrorless? No, not yet. Okay, But I, I'm getting ready to get the, what's the D3? I guess that's the equivalent of the...
0: R three whatever R three R three yeah
1: um, is the equivalent to the one D so I'm getting ready to switch and make that switch and close my eyes across my fingers and hope that I can um, edit properly because that, you know there again I do and I don't say this to, to I'm not trying to impress anyone when I say this I'm just trying to impress upon them like that thing that's hammered into my head if you want something done right do it yourself like when I do a shoot. And and I, I, need, I need to change this, but when I do a shoot, I, I do the pre-production. I do the production. I do the location. I do the location scouting. I do the casting. I do the payments. I do the, the digiteching, I do the, um, unless a, a brand asks to have a di- different digitech and I end up usually editing them anyway, because they, they, it doesn't have the same feel. Um, all the way to post-production to you name it, it's turnkey. So that's what I try to bring to the table for a client is that turnkey. And that's during COVID that really helped because a lot of the brands that were doing the same thing that Filson had done, send all the clothes. I do everything here in Montana and then send them the clothes back, invoice them, get a check. They send more clothes. So right. I, I developed the process um, which I'd already had from my time at Filson and just doing it, you know, just having it right there at my fingertips. Um, so that's, that's the way I work. Um, but I, I've got like, I was mentioning I need to change that because I went and saw John Wick Four with my son the other day. And I was like, this is crazy. Like the amount of work that goes in and you know, from doing documentaries and uh-huh. movies and you know, it's like the amount of work is crazy and even though I had done that other one, you know, 80% myself, how how would you go about even like, I've got stuff like that in my head that I have, I call it creative constipation. There are things that I have to get out. So I've got, before I can move on to the next thing. So I've got things in my head like that, but I have to shove them back down or put them in the back of the line because I'm like, I, I can't do it alone. No. So I, I only want to work with the best. And so I think um, with that said, I'm in the search to find, the right editors, the right people that do the, the color work, the right, um, stylists. Like I'll, I style the shoots too. Like I carry like on my horse trailer, I bring the horses. Um, my other buddies bring their horses like that, that like we do the whole thing. Like I've got all these cool vintage jackets and these shirts and buckets of shirts and slickers and saddles and that are stuff that we use actually here every day. but, I also bring those on the shoots, and then that's that's how I work when we're when we're doing that stuff. So
0: Jesus, that's a lot of work, Chris. My lord,
1: it is. But I, I, I but it's I satisfying. Don't right? know any other way to do it without l- feeling like I'm losing my mind. And so then, and and it's pro- I don't know. I don't know if it's a control issue or if it's more or less just like if you want it done right, do it yourself. But I keep hearing that in my that's my Rolodex, you know. <laughs> so.
0: Walk me through your process like working with subjects. What do you are you very hands-on? You talk to them? How do you communicate?
1: Yeah, because like like to your point earlier, like most of them aren't models. I wasn't a model. So you're gonna as a photographer, you have to direct certain people. Like there's certain people, like I'm sure you've worked with, like you said, Helena Christensen or anybody else, that they're like and as a photographer, when you do get those people in front of your camera, you're like, Oh my gosh, you just made my life. Easy, yeah, but let's do this, you know, we'll get that going. But some, in some respects, I almost like it better if they don't know because, especially me not doing digital and being able to silence this, like these old 1Ds, that you hear the click every time. Mm -hmm. And so, if someone's been in front of the camera, they even though I'll say stay still, don't move, they they hear the click and then instinctively, like, you know, do the move, right? uh, uh, You know, so. With the cowboys, with the Navy SEALs, with the fishermen, with the hunters, whoever the people, the real people that I'm working with, I can say, look at that tree, look at that overhead, look at that horse, look at that cow, look at that, you know, and I I get there, I'm looking at them from the way that I'm seeing it on the page, I call it editing, like I'm editing as I'm shooting, so I'm in my head and I'm knowing like, okay, this is going to be a double spread, you know, a two-page spread I've got to leave enough room on the left, on the right. Here's my gutter. Like I'm thinking all those things just, you know, just like a rapid fire. And I'm sure, I don't know if you do the same thing, but I have to do that to be able to, because I'm also usually laying the ad out or doing the graphics. or So I'm, I'm leaving room for space in the catalog. If it's a catalog, like I know I've got to have them look left, look right, because I don't know if this is going to be on a left page or a right page. Like there's a lot of things just from shooting is just shooting but then if you've had any creative director background or a director background or a producer background or an art direction background, you know that, you know, I've heard it so many times from other people like, please make sure to shoot it horizontal and vertical and leave room for this and leave room for that. Like if you don't, and I'm like, yes, yes. I think about that because I'm (laughs) that I've done all that. So it's, it, it helps in that respect. So that's the That's the good part about that, especially probably for you, too. Like, even when you're shooting document, you know, motion, like, you want to leave that space. The hero's on the right side of the screen. The this is on the left side of the screen. You know, all those little tricks, the Akira Kurosawa type. Yes. You know, and I'm looking at, like, old books. Like, I've got tons of books back here behind me, just old artwork, Remington, uh, Russell, all those things. And those are what I try to bring, you know, watch the old John Ford movies. Like there, there's gold in all oh. these things. Yes. And, and I think to your point too, of like, you know, the nature part of it, I, I always used to hear, especially at Filson, like small person, big, land like you know but i want the person to be part of it i want the person to be part of the nature i want the viewer in the imagery or if you're at a branding or you're with a tactical guy like i want you to feel like you're in the stack or i want you to feel like you could smell the smoke you could felt smell the hair burning you can hear the horses you can smell the towel shit you know like that i want you i want it to be immersive i don't want it to be like it was shot from a car from far away and you're just a you're you're just a bystander. I want you to I want you to feel it. And so if anything that's innately I feel like that's what I try to do is get as close and intimate to the subject to where they feel, you know. I I guess because I've lived in those worlds, they feel like I'm part of those worlds, so I'm not it doesn't get weird with them or like a camera sitting in their face and you know how some people just go stiff because oh, yeah. they're like yeah, but I'm oh, it's just Chris. It's just Chris. So it's like, he just got a camera this time. So that helps immensely.
0: Yeah. When you're one of the guys too, and you're just taking pictures, that does help.
1: Yeah. And it, it feels weird for me to be on the back of a buck and shoot or somewhere else. Cause like now a lot of the younger guys, they don't know me from Adam, but like if I'm friends with the one, you know, the stock contractors or something else and they, don't, they just see me, like I said, but then these younger guys are like, think I'm some photographer that's just never been around this stuff. And they're like, watch it, buddy. Watch it. Why, don't, are you, you going to get hurt? And I'm like, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it's just, <laughs> it's funny. But, um, and I feel like a dork because I've got this big camera and I'm like not doing cool stuff anymore. <laughs> I'm doing cool stuff, but it's for a brand and it does, I don't, I don't want my name on it. It's, it's for somebody to do something to, to propagate the brand. Not like, I'm not a, I mean, my, I'm not a personality photographer. I'm a, right. I want to do cool stuff from the shadows for the brands without my name having to be attached to it. So.
0: I see a lot of Leo Barnett, the gentleman who I think was the Marlboro man. Yeah. developed that. I kind of see a lot of that in your imagery.
1: Yeah. Um, and I think they drew from a lot of the John Ford stuff. Like if you look at the Mar those campaigns, like the packing the saddle over the shoulder, people think, Oh, well that's, Marlboro well no that was a uh, that's Levi's back in 19 19- yeah. like you look at the John Ford shots in Monument Valley oh that's Mar. no that's actually John Ford so I mean in some respect I think we all gravitate back toward the roots of, of what it is that we all fell in love with the West and why we fell in love with the West and it's those that's the gravitas of of uh, uh of nature of the West and what the West was built on the independence, the, the, the spirit, the, the lone wolf, the, you know, that Marlboro man type image. But like I say, you can, you can take that as an outlier perspective. Like, like I, like I I mentioned earlier, like it's um, you can take Laird Hamilton off of a big wave and put him in a, in a rodeo setting and he would probably thrive at riding bulls or riding bucking horses or whatever. Like you can take one of these, you know, Josh Reynolds, uh, great NFR bucking horse rider, and take him and put him in Hawaii with buzzy Kerbucks and, and Laird, and he would thrive with those guys. You could take those SEALs, and they would do the same thing. You could take a Hell's Angel, they would do the same thing. Like, it's the same person. It's the same mentality built into these bodies that I think we have. And then you just got to have an outlet for it. Whether your outlet is in Montana, whether your outlet's in Hawaii, or whether your outlet's in uh, Chino, California, and, you know, it's, it's, yeah. It's, it's all there. It's innate. I think it's innate within us as men to be like, Hey, I, I got to do this and I got to do this and I got to do that. Like it's a, uh, yeah, like I said, it's that, that you gotta have a flow to get that stuff out of you. Otherwise you go crazy. So,
0: What's your most comfortable lens? Are you a 1635 guy, 2470 long lens? I, you know, I've,
1: I've got, I would say I would have said 70 to 200, but I've got another buddy that shoots it up. Uh, his photography is amazing. Um, and his name's Paul, and he's in um, uh, South Carolina. And he, the way he shoots is totally opposite of me. I actually hired him f- for some uh, Filson shoots. And it was one of those things to where we complimented each other so much because he was good at getting the pulled back version of what I was getting so close up and um and 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 it was one of those things that it it made it easier for me because i knew when i got back and i was having to edit the images and do all that type of stuff that it it was going to um compliment we we complimented each other okay um Paul, paul king is his name and um he he works a lot in the outdoor industries and the fishing and fly fishing and saltwater fishing, but just beautiful work. Very clean, very like great aesthetic, great depth of field. And so um where I would be with a seventy-two hundred, he'd be more with like the sixteen to thirty-five or thirty-five millimeter. And so to answer your question, um I've switched and probably in the past month, I've been trying to shoot more sixteen to thirty-five and get more of the breadth of the image but still have it, have you sucked into it and still not feel like you're, you're doing the windshield tour of Yellowstone. I want you to still feel like you can feel the breath of the bear. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. You're still at a 16 to 35, like, you know, so, so, uh,
0: and that's tough. That's tough to do. That's tough to do.
1: Well, I'm having to change. Like I said, I'm trying to change my my approach to things. Like I said, like I've got to change that color grading because I'm getting ready to switch to mirrorless. So I'm uh, there again, what I hear, it's probably something that I'm reticent to. So what have I got to learn from it? So, um, and I want to get better at that. I've told Paul, I'm like, man, you do that so well. And there's another guy named Woody G that takes surf pictures that's freaking awesome. Like his his eye for surf stuff. Like if I could do that in the Western industry, like it would it it, it, like (laughs) they're crazy. And I don't ever want to try to emulate those guys. I want I like I like to bring them with. I haven't worked with Woody, but I would like to. You know, I like bringing Paul with when the budgets afford it. So we can double team it. And then you're getting, you know, you're getting the whole sphere rather than just a PG. It's not flat. Yeah. So, um, Jeff Moore, um, another great photographer he lives behind me. He actually worked for Leo Burnett. He and his wife worked for Leo Burnett for years as creative directors on the Marlboro account and they live right behind me and he's a great photographer. I hired him actually for, uh, Filson for a few jobs, uh, for, uh, duck hunting and stuff like that. He's a great outdoor photographer, but, um, he, yeah, he did those Marlboro campaigns for years.
0: And what are all yeah. these damn great photographers hanging out in Montana?
1: <laughs> they all, well, Jeff and Anya moved here a couple years ago, luckily right before COVID. So like they bought at the right time. So they're like sitting pretty now, but, um, <laughs> uh, Kurt Marcus, I mean, I heard about Kurt from Bruce cause Bruce had told me, I you know, I met this photographer from montana and he takes these great pictures and so that's how i got introduced into kurt's right. work um
0: he's passed away hasn't he
1: yeah he just recently passed away and he had moved to new mexico he and his wife had moved to new mexico i think his uh, son shoots now um too but or ha- has been but um i have his book yeah. I have
0: his christina book
1: he did it's book. which one
0: he had a book uh, with a model is it christina dreaming yeah dreaming
1: georgia it's awesome okay. Yeah. That is a beautiful book because it's a little green book about yeah. this big. Yeah. And it was produced by the Japanese. And um, that's probably one of my favorite books, not his cowboy stuff, but it was all, I think he was trying to 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 do a little story content piece on um, Georgia O'Keeffe. So they shot it at her house and stuff in Taos. And then it's, but the black and white, the, the beauty of his black and whites is just, it's like, unsurpassed like i like bruce's stuff too like that um um got another buddy brian bowen smith that's really in la that's really and he started out same thing i think he was in front of camera he was an athlete he was an inline skater pro inline skater um how do you keep
0: up with your archive
1: uh i (laughs) have i have this is just one stack. I've got four stacks in front of me, all these little SSDs. Yeah. Oh you know, so I'm, I'm trying to do that now and I'm trying to get better at it because here again, I'm doing it myself. I need to, I need that. I need help. But, um, <laughs> if you want something done right do it yourself, but, um, <laughs> I'm doing it myself, but that's, I'm trying to do backups on that. Um, I was trying to think of the net geo photographer, uh, uh, listen to one of his shows or a podcast or something he did on how he does his um, labeling for his, all his stuff. So anytime I've got all of my raids or anything here um, and I need to look something up, I can just go to the date and then just put it in there. So I always start with the date. Like if it's 0308 2023 Mm -hmm. dash job name, dash C Douglas dash. And then it goes to my, um, the number of the frame, Um, and then whatever edit I put on it after the fact. So I do all my editing in Lightroom first, and then I go into Photoshop. So I do all my color grades in Lightroom, and then I do my editing if I have to do any cleanups. Because most of the time where I'm shooting, it's dirty. Sure. Like, it's dust flying. There's horse crap flying. There's, I mean, it's just, it's not a clean spot. So I literally have to clean my cameras every time after a shoot, and I just, now I don't have time, so I'm, more spending more time editing, getting the dirt out of the corners of all my photographs that I can't hide. So, um, <laughs> so with that said, um, I'm trying to compile most of my, I call them Templar images into one raid and then I will have the backups and that scares the heck out of me. Cause I have had a couple of these like take diggers on me, mm-hmm. but luckily um, I used to keep all my cards here like here's just a few of them but I've got tons of them I used to keep them and label them but like these are expen- as you know expensive so I, I'm <laughs> yes. having to repurpose them so um, the really big jobs that I'm like I can't let this one go I try to keep it so I've got three backups I've got that and then two on drives and then like if I leave town I'm so weird I'll take a box of them to Jeff and Anya's who I just mentioned and leave the box at their house. If we're gone, all of, the, of my whole family's gone. So in case something burns down then they're right. there and I lost them because that that's what I'm like, well, well, and if that happens, I'll just take more pictures. So
0: you're not pushing anything to a cloud.
1: No, I don't think so. I don't know if you're, maybe your son that you telling me, <laughs> so you're telling me about apps, maybe he can tell me what, what that means or does but I probably should I don't I, I need to get more adept at that kind of stuff but I I was the, the Nat Geo photographer that I mentioned it's Paul's not Nicklin it was some I can't remember his name off the top of my head but um you know he was working with the film photographer so he had all of his slides yeah imagine having to store those and then having the right temperature like yeah oh my gosh I got
0: a yeah I've got yeah. a closet full of yeah, you know, what do you
1: do? Hundreds. Like and that's where he said the only thing you can do is print them. Yeah. Just print like a print and then put them away somewhere else and then you know. Yeah. I don't that would uh, that wouldn't keep me awake at night. I'm uh, just stressed.
0: Yeah, no, I, I I had a an intern at one point and he spent 2 years and that's all he did was was scan. Scan wow. scan 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 Cuz I wow. I mean I've been shooting films since 87. So yeah. I got a load of film sitting around.
1: And what do you, do you shoot Canon or Nikon? or I what shoot do you Nikon. Use?
0: Yeah. I shoot oh, Nikon personally at work. I just, we're switching to Sony. Oh, okay. Yeah. So uh,
1: I just, I don't, you know, and asking about the digital, I don't, you know, when you look at the back of your screen, like when I look at the back of a 1D, I know, I know how I'm going to edit it so I can look at this and I right. can be like, oh yeah, I can work with that. Uh-huh. Like, cause I'll, I'll shoot like a stop and a half to sometimes two stops dark. Okay, so I don't blow my whites out. But like when you're showing that to a client, if a client's ever with me, they always, every time, every single time, they say oh, that's it's too dark. And I'm like, well, <laughs> I have to edit it. It's right. not- that's it. unedited. Yes, and that's where I explain to them. And then when I show them, then they're like, okay, I'll be quiet. So because it just makes it easier because then I'm not having to stop and explain myself every five minutes. So they just quit asking to see them and then they get them and then they're like, Oh, okay. I understand. Cause you know, I mean, you right. can't, you can't get the whites back. So you got to, you know, you got to keep that in there. Yeah. But um, in the, did in the, in these I can see how they're going to be edited when I'm looking at a spec of a, you know, a, a Sony or something like that. I it looks like on my phone. I can't, I can't. I,
0: right. It, it's hard to and imagine. That, what and, that, and that
1: freaks me out. So I'm like, that's where I'm going to have to be like, whoa. And then like I was talking to Carver at Bozeman camera the other day and I'm like, Hey, this new camera, what does it do that these don't, he goes, well, when you, when you have the eye track on, like it'll track the eye of your subject, but it'll also track your eye. So whatever you're looking at is where it's going to focus. And I'm like, he goes, don't ask. I don't know how it does it, but it it seems cool. And I'm just like, Oh my gosh, like I'm going to have a bit of a learning. I'm going to have to go to Yellowstone park for a week and just,
0: yeah, when you do no. that too, you have to be very focused because if you start looking around and you're taking pictures, all of yeah, a sudden your yeah. focus is all out. And you're like, well, I was shooting the bear, but I was looking at the background. Background yeah. sharp.
1: Yeah, yeah. so yeah. that's, you know, and I don't want to shoot everything at F-23 <laughs> and then you'll figure it out later. No. Like, not at all. I, I was with some people the other day, and, I, and I, I'm not a tech – I don't know if you are or not, but, like, are you a technical photographer? Like, are you thinking all the time? of Like, i got to get – F2.8, and I've got to do, you know. Yeah. I, I think from film cameras, you probably are because you had to be. Right, I mean, you had and that, to, and
0: yeah. so I, my internships, I worked with very anal photographers. I, I was uh, R- Richard Avedon. I, I assisted a lot of the uh, SI guys, and it was all film. So you got light meters, and you're spotting everything, and you got to make sure we're on full slides. can't yeah. be wrong. You know, Hasselblad, 4x5. So it was just been beaten into me that right. – you know, I have to know that we're at, you know, this, we're at this, we're at this. That's just the way I work. I can't, I can't be loosey goosey. It does not in my blood. Right. Right. I mean, I'll set up a family photo and I'll be like, Oh, this has got to be a, you know, F (laughs) seven one and he'll backlight and hair this and that. And and my wife's just like, Oh, 30 years of this. Come on. Take the damn picture. (laughs) So it's just the way we all evolve. What do you yeah, got coming and, on next? What's what's next on Chris's plate? Um, just
1: I've got, I've got a few clients that I'm just working for on the mainstay right now, and and that's good because they're they are authentic brands that are that are especially from the Western. You know, I'm doing everything from like bags these high end bags to to these high end jackets that uh there's a, a great girl named Lindsay Thornberg who does the jackets the Pendleton she she is the one of the only people that has been allowed to use Pendleton fabric so it, on the tags it says Lindsay Thornberg times Pendleton so she does these really cool jackets with all this fur on them and stuff i'm getting ready to shoot that this week again I shot it last year for um, and then her jackets are on like Beth on Yellowstone and stuff like that for the shows and stuff, but she's, she, she has great stuff, great mind, great designer. Um, there's another company, um, out of big Scott, uh, Arella bags. Um, it's a lady that makes really, really cool bags. So we're going to go uh, to New Mexico and shoot some stuff in the fall um, working a lot with Resistall, which is uh, they're about to hit their hundredth year anniversary. They're a cowboy hat manufacturer. Um, they also own Stetson hats, but it's Hatco and that uh, all Dobbs and and Charlie One Horse. Um, great people over there. They're they're actually really the only brand, apparel brand, hat brand, boot brand that are run by actual cowboys and cowgirls. Which right. is um, so it's. They're amazing. Like Ricky Bolan and Mary Jane and everybody over there, Dustin Noblet, like they're all top notch people, um, great characters. Um like Ricky was a four time NFR bull riding qualifier. Like they're they live it. Like they their their thing is we live it every day, and they they honestly do. So they're they're great people. Um still uh you know just new clients are coming in and out all the time but it's just it's just a matter of like what what I can fit in, in and you know by myself in a month at a time and then move out but we're I've got bookings all the way into December which is good so at least if I can you know I want to do last to, to really hone in on those edits for those people but um i there again I've got to get that learning curve of figuring out these new cameras so I can make sure that I can edit properly
0: does, but, does photography still light your fire? Like you still get fired up to go out on a shoot? It does. I, you know, I think at some point, I'm I'll, because I do so much
1: production too, like we do have a produ- big enemy. Um, it's our production company, and so I work with great people. Like I, I do, uh, I am able <laughs> to, because I can only shoot either motion or print, but I've got guys that do the same thing. They can shoot print and or motion equally well so there's a brand i work with called K and and so they work with me under big enemy um it's mike eldridge and and uh, tony and they they are awesome they're out of utah and um, i've used them for multiple filson things uh, we've done a movie together a documentary film um called 500 miles about a, another navy seal buddy of ours and i i, I yeah. got a bunch of other guys involved with that as far as for some of my cowboy buddies like Brendan Clark and Ramon Becerra and Grant Gallagher, and paired them with the seals, you know, the team guys that I know and, uh, did went to Oregon and picked up a bunch of Mustangs. So that's how I met Mike and Tony. And then, um, subsequently that was years ago and now we're still, we're getting ready to go do another job in Texas here in May. We just finished one in Nashville uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, but they're they're great to work with. I'm pretty loyal in the sense that like once I find people that I not only can trust, but can you know, to get the work done to my standards, which I'm I'm hard enough on myself and I'm I'm sure I'm super hard on other people, which is not great. But like from a work perspective, it like I said, I only want to work with the best. And so I'll I'll keep those people around. So that's why you see a lot of the people if if you do look at my Instagram page, you'll see the same people because it's, Mm -hmm. those are the guys that I've known, like Ross Coleman, who's a, was a PBR bull rider working cowboy, like known for 20 plus years. I try to bring him in on every job I do. Dallin Parker, Josh Reynolds. Like it's all these, these group of us that work well together. We've got great synergy, um, riders that I'm working with now through big enemy. Um, Sarah Grigg, Jeff Moore, who I'd mentioned, uh, his wife, Anya, who's an art director and creative director. Like we, we've got such a good small team of people to be able to do big projects that that's where I think a lot of the, the newer clients that we're getting, it kind of blows their mind because that there doesn't have to be 50 people standing around with their hands in their pockets and 10 of them are over by the craft table getting paid. And I'm, (laughs) me and Mike and everybody else are doing all the work so it uh it 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 makes it streamline and it and it we want to get stuff done and get it delivered and and like I say create the best images for brands that we possibly can whether that be motion or print so
0: now here's the most serious question when is Antonio Lopez Fitzgerald going to make a guest appearance on Yellowstone
1: He's not. He's not. I can promise you that. <laughs> uh, uh, I, Travis hasn't that.
0: called and said I need some Antonio.
1: <laughs> I got too many scars on my face now, and I got this big mustache on my face that you were making fun of, and like <laughs> I'm
0: uh, <laughs> making I'm, fun of my, my <laughs> wife. Loves that thing. I was showing her you your your modeling photos, and she was hoping this was an in person <laughs> podcast.
1: <laughs> no, I, I'm. Uh, I think I'm. I'm done, not unless it was the right price. I, I, can't. I think I could do it, unless uh, they. I would be the. It's like the Keanu Reeves. I, I saw something the other day with uh, John Wick Four. I think he had a hundred, just over a hundred and seventy words in the whole movie. Like they would have to pare me down to about four. So uh, that's how that's how good of an actor I am. how uh, you could pull it off. Come uh, on. I don't think so. I can't act my way out of a wet paper bag. I always tell people. So don't. Uh, but that, uh, that, that little modicum of a label never stuck with me because I'm not, I can't claim that one. Well, <laughs> so.
0: All right. So we'll work on your acting skills, but your photography is, is outstanding. I, I love it. I love to see it. It inspires me. It's good stuff. Uh, I love Montana and you show that world very well, sir.
1: Well, please, please come visit. You're welcome up anytime. Like I said, we've got plenty of room for you guys, and, and please take us up on that. I, I invite so many people up, and I, I don't invite you if I don't actually want you to be here. So just uh, make sure that if you ever want to come up, you're more than welcome. What, so, what
0: is that, about a 17, 18-hour drive? No, from uh, from down where you are, it's probably 15,
1: 16. Yeah, somewhere around in there. Usually I would drive from L.A. to um, – Pocatello, Idaho, and then get up in the morning, and then you've only got like three or four hours. Or if I'm driving back, I'll usually stop like in Mesquite, Nevada. So um, I didn't have to stop in Vegas and then go on from there. So it makes it pretty easy. And I just cut across that Pear Blossom Highway. That's an easy easy little cut across the of clarita so
0: easy peasy man i'm on yeah. my way i'll be there for lunch tomorrow <laughs> all right
1: come on it's easter
0: we'll have a good time <laughs> that's so. right oh god it's right it's easter tomorrow oh, <laughs> chris i can't thank you enough man this has been fantastic i'm glad you answered my email and, and agreed to be on the podcast because I've wanted you beyond. I love your work, really do. Well, I hope I
1: hope I didn't bore you to death with all those bad stories, but no. I did. I've I've, uh, I've sure enjoyed the conversation. Thank you very much, and and I look forward to um, having you guys out, and you can tell us all about your life and story, and I'd love to meet your wife and kids, and yeah, it'd be great. Oh, so.
0: Christ. they'll be. I can't tell them what you just said because they'll be on out, out there <laughs> on
1: our. <laughs> well, please take us up on that. So. All right, Chris. All right, thanks. Thank you.
0: Thank you for listening to my conversation with Chris Douglas. If you enjoyed this episode, please click and hit the like button. Become a subscriber to the podcast. Remember to follow the Jessica Conversation podcast on Instagram, and you can find all of our past shows on the website at jessicaconversation.com. Thank you for listening.